Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, family. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate that. How y'all doing today? Good. Good. Great to see everyone. Uh, Before I begin, I just wanted to publicly acknowledge uh, Grant, who preached in my place when I took another knee uh, last week. And I just want us to not only thank him, but to thank our father because, man, look, you guys are used to me preaching, but I don't slide in any other direction. I am not a utility infielder. Like, I just, I just bat seventh. That's all I do, right? But Grant, you're so used to seeing him week in and week out leading us in worship through music, so gifted by our father for our good and his fame. And then he stepped into the pulpit and batted cleanup, right? And so... Uh, Grant, I just wanted to thank you because I know that was an investment of your time, but also want to give credit where credit is due to our father for gifting Grant for our good and his fame. So we can give him a round of applause. All right, so now you're back to uh, seventh in the lineup. Here we go. Uh, We're still in our our series in Acts, in the book of Acts, entitled Spirit Empowered, reminding us that we are a a family of common people. We're rescued rebels, adopted in by the Father. We deserve judgment. He showed us kindness in Jesus instead. But we're just common. There's not really anything special about us. What sets our family apart is the Father's uh, Spirit, His empowering presence among, among us. So uncommon things happen because of the Spirit's presence. We are God's spirit-empowered family. And our journey through Acts takes a cheery turn this week. We just heard the passage read, and here's the big idea for the morning. Here's what we see. God's spirit-empowered family has problems. There it is, okay? God's spirit-empowered family has problems. Aren't you glad you waited for the 11 o'clock? Like somebody from the 9 could have texted you and said, eh, yeah. But hey, there it is. God's spirit-empowered family has problems. So it's PCS season. We talked a little bit about that last week. And uh, we focus a lot on the goodbyes. We said another in the nine, and we'll, we'll say another goodbye here in the 11. Um, we don't have to just focus on the goodbyes. PS, PCS season is a season of people arriving in Okinawa as well. So we make new friends. And um, when people arrive, if they're not already relationally connected, where do they turn for meaningful answers and just profound respect? from people, 
Out of Facebook, of course, and oaky questions and other similar healthy environments. And so from time to time, you get questions like, hey, I need a church family. What do you recommend? And I enjoy, I, I really am trying to be on Facebook less, so you can pray for me in that. But I, I enjoy reading those threads for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons I enjoy those threads is simply, look, Church is not like family, it is family. So it's really life-giving to me when I see a ton of people responding across the island, and they're just all enthusiastic about their family. That's right, and it's life-giving. I love seeing people speak well publicly about their church families. It's awesome. Now, since church is family, that would mean the other churches on this island, not ours, would be our sister churches, or you could even say our cousins, like we're all in the same family. So if it's life-giving to speak well of our own churches, how life-giving would it be if under those threads when we were responding, people would be more like, well, I go to Pillar and I'd be happy to kind of commend it to you if you wanted, but to be honest with you, you've got multiple healthy, good churches to choose from on this island. Let me tell you a little bit about COSA and what their strength is. Let me speak well about Calvary and Keystone and go right down the list. How life-giving would that be if those were the responses? Not like we're competing for market share of new Christians to Okinawa, but we just spoke well about the existing churches. I took too much time in the first service speaking well about other churches. And it really shortened us on the back end. So I'm going to throttle back a little bit. But I think it's important that you hear this publicly. Uh, I had a half hour long conversation with Chris Ayer, the pastor at um, COSA, yesterday on the phone just while I was uh, driving around. And, man, I'm so encouraged by that guy. He loves Jesus. He loves his people. Uh, his, man, he's just, his character is being formed by the gospel. And COSA excels in a number of, a number of ways in just... One way, they, they're so good in children's ministry and youth ministry. That's just one example. We could keep going, but I, I won't in this hour. And then there's Keystone. Just down the road, Brian Woolery. Man, Brian's heart is so formed by the gospel. He loves the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the, in especially Matthew's account. He works so hard to form everything in their life of the church according to the Sermon on the Mount, their gatherings, their liturgy, their life together. I am, he's such a humble follower of Jesus. Nothing but good things to say about Brian. And then there's Calvary, Rick Barnett. Now, I don't necessarily on purpose rack and stack like pastors and rank them on the island, like according to, but if I did, and I have, Rick is like my one of ten when it comes to shepherding pastors. Man, that guy just kills it. He's such a good shepherding pastor. He's so good. And Jesus has formed that in his heart. And I was actually at a party yesterday um, on the beach, mostly socially distanced. And there was, a, there was a person there that I know from Calvary. And I'm like, just say, hey, I'm, I'm curious, what do, you, what do you really like about your church? And so she said, well, man, we, I, we have profoundly deep, meaningful relationships. And that, that's a fruit of the gospel. But then she also said, our pastor is an incredible shepherding pastor. He is so good to his people. Um, so, man, Rick Barnett down at Calvary. Then there's Zion uh, right down the road from us, Zion Academy and, and Church. And that's pastored by Bishop Whitaker. And, guys, he's been on the island. He, he arrived at about the same time that Noah came down <laughs> off the ark. And if you think I'm kidding, I'm really not. I, he's been serving as a pastor here longer than almost all of you have been alive. And, like, that, that's not an exaggeration. Um, he's been battling cancer for the last five years, basically, since I've known him. 
And man, he gets up and gets after work. He goes to work. And he is the most optimistic pastor on the island that I know. Why? It's not fake. He just really believes the gospel, believes that Jesus is sovereign over everything. So he gets up with his cancer every morning with a joyful attitude. Look, look, see, I beat cancer again. Jesus beat it for me. I have another day of life. I'm going to serve. And I'm just telling you, like, his attitude permeates the life of his church. I'm good friends with his son, who's much closer to my age, uh, Josh. Um, and then you got neighborhood down the road from the mall. Man, they passionate. They just really care deeply about the Spirit's presence in their worship. Uh, much respect for them. And then Friday, I had lunch with William Pollard. Uh, William pastors Calvary Church of God in Christ. And, man, that guy hustles. He is an active-duty Marine. It's insane. And he shepherds a church. He preaches every weekend. So you know my side hustle is a reservist, right? You know, like, that cat's out of the bag. I'm a reservist. Sorry. Like, all the stereotypes, all that stuff. That's my side hustle. And so I just finished up about 30 days. And you know that I took a knee at least twice during those 30 days, like tapped out. I can't do this. That guy just gets up and gets after it and preaches faithfully every weekend. Man, his heart is beautifully shaped by the gospel. Sometimes you read something about yourself in those threads, and that's fun. One person attended Pillar and then wrote like kind of critically under that. uh, Or maybe it wasn't critical. I don't know. They were responding to that thread. And they're like, yeah, Pillar was okay. We went. My husband, you know, he kind of liked it. But, man, the pastor's sermon was just like a TED Talk. And so at first I read it, and I felt slighted because I'm like, she's saying something about my theology or, like, it's a weak sermon. But I'm like, no, nah, man, I don't think anybody's ever confused one of my winding, long sermons for a TED Talk. That's fantastic. Like, I, that is beautiful. So I screenshotted that, and I have it in my diary. Um, <laughs> I, I gave a TED Talk because I'll never be invited to give a TED Talk. Sometimes it's humorous because you read a description, somebody like so passionate about their church and it's beautiful and life-giving, but you read it and you're like, man, they're like quoting Bible verses to describe their church. Like, what's going on over there? Is Jesus himself showing up to preach on the weekends? Like five loaves and two fishes. What's happening over there? You know, it's crazy. The bottom line is this. We chuckle at that because we know, while it's so great for people to be enthusiastic about their churches, there is no perfect church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this one time, he said, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. There are no, per- no perfect churches in Okinawa, fam. Usually we pick a church, and if we like it, we do kind of subconsciously feel like we're a little bit above the others. And the narrative that we're going to see in the text this morning knocks us down and helps us understand that the ground is level We may have different problems, but we all have problems. God's spirit-empowered people have problems. Now, if ever there was a candidate for perfect church, it's the church we're learning about in Acts, yeah? Pretty insane so far. Everything's been good about it. Here's just this brief description we saw in chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? So they're gospel-centric. They care about Jesus' word. Plus, I mean, the apostles are basically pastoring them. Not John Ransom, some dude who side hustles with the reserves, like real pastors, like the professionals, the apostles. They'd spent time with Jesus, and here they were. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, like good, good, good. Awe came upon every soul. Like there's your Facebook post right there, like come to church, it's awesome, right? That's right there. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The spirit was present in power. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any person had need. What kind of crazy culture is that? What a beautiful family. 
and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So they're mixing it up in each other's houses, not just a Sunday thing like church as family. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Like they gave and they praised God. And look, they had favor with all the people. Even people outside the church thought well of this church. Like how, how crazy would it be? Somebody shows up on Oki, posts the church question in Oki questions, and a bunch of non-Christians start commenting, well, let me, let me tell you about this church. Like, I'm not a Christian, but if I were, like right here, dude, you would know the gospel was up to something in Okinawa. Like, when that day comes, that's going to be crazy. It could happen. That's what's happening. Like, that, this is their Facebook post right here, non-Christians, favor with all the people. And so the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Man, that's insane. Have you ever been a part of a church like that? I know we like to think we are from time to time, right? Like, coach, call me up to varsity. Like, this is us. The image that came to my mind as a young kid who had no ups was there were a few moments in high school where I could jump and my fingertips, or nails rather, if I let them grow out a little bit, could skim the rim on a 10-foot basket. Anybody with me? And those days are gone now. But I had them for a couple months, and they were beautiful. I feel like that's how a lot of us, like as church, we're like, that's the 10-foot rim right there. And we're like, oh, we got it, we got it. But it's always just a little bit out of reach. But that's, that's beautiful. But here's what we're going to see, guys. They weren't perfect either. In fact, they had a very real problem. Look, verse 1, we heard it read already. And I guarantee you've heard this. I, I bet most of you have heard this read before. But we've skimmed over it as like, man, it sounds like a problem, but not a big deal. Guys, this is a really, really big problem. Look at this. In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Your grandmother, who was needy, was showing up for food and for financial support, and she was being turned away. This good church that we just read about was neglecting grandmas, right? That's bad. Like, that's really bad. That's toxic bad. It's really bad. They had this thing called daily distribution. It was part of their culture. There really was not a social framework. Like, we're used to, in our culture, the government kind of handles all of those things. Um, and this day, that was not the case. And so widows or the poor in a church would show up. And, well, I mean, where else would you go for, like, this God, the purpose of God's family, right? So they show up. They had this thing called the daily distribution. And according to their need, a widow or a person in need would be handed a certain amount of money to make it through the day or the month. And they'd get their meals, right? They would get their meals. So they called it the daily distribution. But there were widows being neglected. Now, as serious as that sounds, let me show you why it's even more serious than what it appears on the surface. And we understand the scope of the problem when we understand, you see the two people groups, right? We got Hellenists and we have Hebrews. And understanding what's going on between these two people groups helps us understand how serious the problem is. And here it is. The Hellenists were a minority people in Jerusalem. Okay, so they're a minority the Hebrews were the majority population, okay? So we have minorities in the church raising a complaint against the majority population in the church. Now, both were Jews, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. They're both Jews, but Hellenists were Jews who were born and raised in faraway places and then immigrated to, to Jerusalem or the region much later in life. Hebrews were those Jews who grew up in and around Jerusalem, born there, raised there, little league, daycare, high school, all the things. They shared also all the social networking, all the roots, all the support, the neighborhoods, all of it. It's theirs, right? 
the Hellenists also included Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, so not even necessarily true Jews by blood or lineage, so not pure. The Hebrews, on the other hand, were much more classically like pure Jewish line, like they could trace their lineage all the way back. Language was also different. Hellenists' first language was Greek because they were dispersed into Greek-speaking cities. But in Jerusalem, the Hebrews spoke primarily Aramaic and Hebrew. So the Hellenists would immigrate back. Maybe they would learn to be able to speak some Aramaic and Hebrew. Maybe they'd learned it growing up. But when they opened their mouths, their mouths gave them away. They spoke with an accent, right? Just like when you roll up and you think you've nailed it and you're going to order your coffee in straight-up Japanese at Starbucks here, and you roll with it and you finish your sentence, you're like, nailed it. And it's just silence on the other end. And they're like, sumimasen. So you, like, you can't do it, can you? Like, and even when you do, like, your accents just butchers the words. It gives you away as a, you're not immigrants, but as a displaced person who obviously was not born or raised here. Different languages, different accents, different cultures, immigrants, outsiders. And they would often immigrate later in life, like the retirement season, because it was a big deal to die and be buried in that region as a Jewish person. So there were lots of widows, probably an inordinate amount of immigrant widows, and these widows were not assimilated into the community. So no support structure, no relationship, nothing like that. Lots of widows, no roots. Now in Jerusalem, guys, we can relate to this. They had separate synagogues. They were both Jewish, but the Hellenists had their own, speaking some Greek. The Hebrews had their own, speaking some Hebrew and Aramaic, like different churches, if you will. Even different neighborhoods, like you've heard the the words redlining before. It was like Jerusalem's version of redlining. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus brought both of these groups with nothing but differences into the same family, unified in the gospel and in Jesus. That's what the gospel does. But what we see is here, the problem is the widows belonging to the minority were being neglected by the majority. Now, listen. This is the first recorded problem about the existing church that we encounter, right? Acts is the story of the church being birthed, and everything we've seen so far has been good, good, good. And then we slam up against this thing, and it's not like, it's not like a little bad, like you visit a church and kids are distracting, and the music's like, eh, so-so, or the preacher's like, clearly he plagiarized, printed, and preached, like, like just not feeling it. Like, this is a big, big, big deal, But guys, look, here's what we need to see. The first recorded problem for the church in the Bible is an ethnic problem. Some of us are so very sensitive about that conversation in our culture. This text should put us all at ease that to the earliest days, God's family, his spirit-empowered people, as they're adopted in from diverse diverse contexts, have always struggled with assimilation and unity and equity in the family. They struggle with integration, living as one family. Guys, every generation and culture struggles. And I know for the last 18 months or so, we have worked hard to patiently bring the gospel to bear on some of our own cultural dynamics, as we should. But it's not just an American problem. It is an American problem, but not not only. For example, let's just focus on Okinawa for a little bit. Okinawans, the Ryukans, are the largest ethno-linguistic minority in Japan. Did you know that? So mainland Japanese 
people would not even view the Ryukans or the, the Okinawans as true Japanese people, and Okinawans know it. So no sliding on West Virginia. Like, I know West Virginia is basically Virginia just a little bit west. Like, I, I got educated, so I, I know that. But the Japanese people are essentially looking at Okinawa as their West Virginian. All the jokes, right, and all the stereotypes. But Okinawans do the same thing to other people groups. Filipinos have immigrated here. Uh, Nepalese have immigrated here. If you go down, which you'll never have to, but I did, when I took my motorcycle license test down at the DMV here, it's mostly Nepalese teenagers trying to get their scooter licenses down there. It's a lot of fun. Um, but Filipinos, Nepalese, Koreans, and other immigrants here, do you know how they're viewed? Here's how they're viewed. I mean, we understand this. It's the same conversation or the same approach that we have in America, our view towards Mexicans who immigrate or just run across the border in hopes of gaining a better life for their family. Viewed the same way here in Oki. But I'm not picking on Okinawans. I'm just trying to demonstrate this is a global issue in our sin-corrupted hearts. It's a rebel tendency that we all share cross-culturally, all the way back to the first generation of the church, right? And we know that you've studied history, so you know it's true regionally here. We can just keep going country after country, the way people view each other. Here it is, right here, first generation of the church. It was a problem in their culture. And when a problem is present in the culture, it will be present in the life of the church too, unless the gospel is robustly brought to bear on this thing. But sometimes we're like, well, man, they would just get it right if they'd be devoted to the gospel, right? But what did we already learn about these people? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were so passionate about the gospel that they were spending time in jail. Yet this was still a problem in the life of the church. In other words, what that means was it was not enough to just have gospel conversations. The church needed to take a knee. That's what we're going to see them do here. And have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation from the leaders, everybody involved, family chat. Fam, we have a problem. We need to respond as the gospel, as, as our Father would have us respond. And we're going to come up with a solution. That's exactly what we're going to see here. God's spirit-empowered family has problems. So here's a question. Why was this recorded in Luke's narrative? Like, why didn't Luke just keep giving us all the good stuff? Well, why not? Why wouldn't he just give us all the good stuff? And to that, I would just say, I don't know. I wish he was here to give an answer to that question. Um, we can ask him when we, when we meet Luke um, in Jesus' fulfilled kingdom. But I think, I think we can safely consider three reasons as to why Luke, through the Spirit, made sure this negative account is included in the narrative of Acts. And here, here they are. For our own humility as a church, for our own humility, for our own response, so that we would see how the gospel would have us respond to similar situations in our culture, and for our own diagnosis as a church family. So let's just kind of hit them in that order. Humility, response, and diagnosis. Guys, we've already said this. There is no perfect church. Every generation has its problems. Every church has its own set of problems. But we tend to judge our parents and our grandparents, like seriously. We just almost never outgrow our tendency to judge those who have gone before us. And fair enough, they had their own problems, right? But you know what? We've got our own problems now, too. We've got our own set. Now, listen, there is a place to consider the historical shortcomings of our family. That's an important conversation to have. We can't just put our heads in the sand when the shortcomings, whether complicit or implicit, 
are revealed about the life of our church families going back generations. We need to be able to have honest conversation about those things. We've got to be able to think about them and talk about them. But this narrative invites us to apply the same measure to ourselves today. Likewise, we tend to think most critically of other churches on the island or in whatever city we're in, especially when they're theologically different than we are, or they look different, or they express themselves in worship differently than we do. We think critically about them. But this narrative invites us, compels us to consider ourselves with that same kind of standard. We're not better than, we're different from, maybe, but we have our own set of family problems, just like the next church family. And so since that's true, wouldn't we just commit ourselves to speak well publicly of the other churches that are on the island? We don't need to be the ones to point out their flaws, especially publicly. You want to point them out, go have a private conversation. That's fine but not publicly, right? We speak well about each other publicly, understanding that every spirit-empowered family has its own problems, humble posture. I wonder, as the widows of the minority group were being neglected, do you think it was intentional or unintentional? I mean, just going off what we have right here in this passage, do you think you can tell? Do you think we have enough evidence to say one way or the other? Yeah, I don't think we do. I don't think we do. It's possible that for some it was intentional. They may have some deeply rooted biases. There may be some prejudice that was present that the gospel had to confront, possibly. But Luke doesn't seem to, to, to tip his hand one way or the other. So we can give them the benefit of the doubt and say that, okay, perhaps it was simply inadvertent that this, this immigrant population found themselves to be the minority and they were simply being overlooked or lost in the shuffle. We don't know. Could be one way or the other. But here's what we need to see in this, guys. The majority population was clueless that this was happening. As we can tell, it's like they didn't know until the complaint was arised. It was arisen. So what, what should that help us to see? Sometimes... The majority in any church family can be completely unaware until a minority presence speaks up. And they spoke up. They spoke up. And the Spirit gave them eyes to see and ears to hear and gave these people the courage to speak up and gave the leaders in this family the humility to respond. Would you join me? And let's just take a few seconds in silence and ask the Father through the Spirit to cultivate the same posture in us that we wouldn't have defensive hearts, but that we would have humble hearts, eyes to see, ears to hear. And if there are some in our family that feel that we are neglecting any person or persons, that God would give them the courage to speak and that when they speak, we would be humble enough not to argue or defend, but receive. Father, give us humble hearts. Spirit, give us eyes to see. Give members of our family who may be outside of a majority the courage to speak should they see or perceive any evidence of neglect, whether it's purposeful or just incidental, whatever, and that we would receive and not be defensive. Give us humble hearts, Father, through your Spirit.
So I think the Father gives us this peace in the narrative for our own humility, fam. We've got to be humble. But I think he also gives it to us for our, our, our response so that we can learn how to respond. And look, like here's a master class on how to respond to this kind of a situation. This family absolutely embraces the complaint. There's no equivocation in this passage, is there? Look at verse 2. The 12, so the apostles who are basically pastoring that family, summoned, it says, the full number of disciples, and they had a family chat, and they said, we have a problem. That's it. Family chat, it was an operational pause. They stop everything else in the life of the church. They gather, and they have a frank honest conversation. Here's the complaint that's been raised. What we don't see in the text, like, do you see any denial? None. I don't see any. Do you see any reframing of the argument? Do you see anybody slinging stats? But that's what we do culturally. It almost wouldn't have surprised you to read just a slightly different take on the narrative. Maybe the Hebrews and the majority saying, well, it's your perception that this is happening. We didn't ask you to immigrate to our city. I mean, look, there are, there are Hellenistic synagogues. How about this? How about we help you plant a church? You could have your own church, and everybody could be good, and we'll have ours. Like, we're in the same family, but Jesus understands different cultures and all that. Like, you be beautiful, we'll be beautiful, we'll take care of our own, you take care of our own. You don't see that. No reframing. No defensiveness. Like, hey, we're not failing. We're not overlooking. You just didn't show up at the right time. Uh, no slinging stats, which is really what we do in our culture now. Here's what I mean. Uh, you don't see anything in the narrative about the Hellenist fathers being absent from the home, or they weren't achieving the right education level, or um, what about Hellenist crime on like Hellenist on Hellenist crime? Like we're not taking that. Like all these things that enter into our conversations as we deflect, or we deny, or we diminish or we pivot, or we say, ah, that's not really our lane. Our lane is to preach the gospel. Uh, We can't have those conversations in detail. None of that in the text. None of that. What do we see? A humble posture, receiving the complaint, raised by the minority, that we're being overlooked. And an immediate response. Look at this. They summon the 12. There's just no equivocation here. They own it. And here's the solution, verse 3. Hey, fam, look. We have a real problem, but as the apostles, like, this happened on our watch, and it needs to be fixed. We're going to fix this, but we don't have the capacity to fix it ourselves because our primary lane is um, spending time in the Word, developing sermons, teaching, training, all of these things, praying for our family. So we need help. So family, pick seven people who are trustworthy and have good reputation, obviously, because they're going to be... Uh, handing out, they're going to be managing funds and serving people, lots of money, lots of food, lots, lots of logistics, reputation matters. But what they're really looking for is we just, we need people who are full of the spirit. And guys, look, when it comes to humility, like here's another indicator for us. Every church has this problem, right? Spirit empowered people have problems. How do we come at those problems with humility and grace and actual gospel centered solutions that are good for people, not divisive, not arguing, not diminishing, not reframing, not slinging staffs, not all these things? The Spirit's got to be present in our hearts. We've got to be submitting to the work of the Spirit. And when we do, He will cultivate a posture of quiet humility. We will listen. We will own what we need to own. And we will come up with solutions that are good for people and faithful to the gospel. And that's what they do. Give us seven people. 
Choose seven. So the family's like, all right, you want seven? Here's seven. We got Philip. We got Prochorus. We got Nicanor. We got Timon. Um, not of Lion King fame. Parmenas. Nicholas. Now, Nicholas is interesting. It says he's a proselyte from Antioch. That means he's not even a Jew. It means he converted to Judaism. He's from the city of Antioch. He immigrated to Jerusalem, and now he finds himself a Christian and part of the first generation of the church. You know what's crazy about this list of seven guys? You know what's crazy about this? They're all minorities. Not a one of them was a Hebrew. They were all Hellenists. Every one of them, outsiders. You think that communicated that the leadership in the church and the church itself was serious about this? Like, dog, you feel underrepresented? That's not going to happen again. You feel neglected? Not going to happen again. You don't feel like we are fully assimilating you into the life of our, of our church? You don't feel like we're, or you feel like we're asking you to uh, adapt to majority culture and we're not honoring your own? Last time you feel that way. All seven will be Hellenists. All seven. Now, why did that matter so much? I think it mattered so much for a couple of reasons. First of all, who was probably already handling the daily distribution? Well, the Hebrews, of course. So it was under their watch that Hellenist widows were being neglected. So it's not like, hey, we care, so we're going to have a chat with our uh, Hellenist or our Hebrew overseers, and we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. No. We're going to match them one for one. It's not going to happen again. Okay? Who's going to care more about Hellenist widows? Hellenists, right? Who knows where the Hellenist widows live? Who knows their street address? Who knows their neighborhood? Whose grandmother are we talking about anyway? Well, Nicholas's grandmother, Timon's grandmother, Parmenas's uh, grandmother. I can't say any of their names. That's who we're talking about. And that's who the family appoints. That's how seriously they took this. Not that we will adjust a little bit as a culture so that you feel like you're part of the family. We're going to make sure that you understand you're a full part of the family. And here's representation on our leadership team. All seven. And I love, guys, look, the solution to, because look, there's the gospel. Not separate churches, not separate denominations, not ethnocentric churches, churches broken down upon skin color lines or geographical lines, it would, have, man, it would have made all the sense in the world for the Hellenists to bounce right out of that joint. All the sense in the world. Amazing that they persevered and said, we're being neglected here. Amazing. But what a gracious, spirit-filled response that the majority would also take a, take a measure full enough to communicate that they were serious and they could have just said, we'll help you start your own thing. And they said, no, this is your thing. And watch us prove it to you that it's just as much your thing as it is our thing. The apostles laid their hands on them, verse 6, and prayed. That's just another, that's, uh, that's a public way that leaders can acknowledge again. Guys, as leaders of this church, this failure happened under our watch. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. No denigration of character, full affirmation, full communication that will get this right. And by laying on their hands, they gave full authority to these immigrants, these outsiders, that you've got the full weight of the pastoral team supporting you. You make this right in the culture of our church. It's beautiful. So we have this narrative, this messy narrative for our own humility, and we have it for our own response. That's how the Father would have us to respond when a minority person 
voices a concern or a complaint to a majority population in the life of a church. Right there. And finally, for our own diagnosis. Guys, their minority widows were being neglected. Do we have any widows in the life of this church here? This is a really unusual church. You go to any church in America, you're going to have some widows present. Pretty much, right? You ever stop and think about how unusual it is to be part of a church family over here? How young we tend to be? How disconnected from the generations we tend to be? But I'm not aware. I could be wrong, but I am not aware of a woman who is widowed in our family and is still widowed. I'm not aware. So how do we identify the persons in our own family for whom we could be neglecting or not caring for them well? How do we identify who those people might be? I think the first thing we need to do is just be very clear in understanding who's majority and who's minority. That's what the text did for us, right? It's very clear. We've got the Hellenists, we've got the Hebrews. Very clear, one's a majority, one's a minority. So who in our family, in our demographic, would be, let's break this down. We don't need a census. Let's start here. In our church family, our young church family, couples with kids in the home tend to be the majority, right? Yeah, couples with kids. So we can start there. There's a starting point. There's kind of a starting point for a definition. Uh, Secondly, we could say this church, if you've been around for a while, tends to be more kind of mid to senior enlisted and officers. Not very many young junior enlisted, right? So so that would kind of be our majority context too. Also, white Americans would be kind of a majority demographic in this room. We We could make that observation as well. So there, there's kind of the framework for who might be in majority here, right? Just some examples. Not exhaustive, but some examples. So with that understanding then, who might be those minority persons or people groups who may knowingly or unknowingly experience life with us in such a way that they feel like they're on the outside looking in? Who could we think of? I think we could start with single people. Yeah, bud. Uh, yeah, right, exactly, single people. You're like, man, everything around here is for couples or people with kids. What is up? Singles. You feel like you're on the side. You feel like you're looking in. You feel underrepresented. Very possible that your, your needs are being overlooked. Possibly singles. What about couples without kids? That was a really hard season for my wife and I. We were married for a long time before we finally had children. We thought we would never have kids. We struggled with profound dark seasons of uh, infertility and miscarriage. Meanwhile, meanwhile, like all of our peers were just cranking them out, overpopulating the nursery. (laughs) We're like, we're on the outside looking in right now. Dude, that's a thing in our context. So much a thing. Young military guys. You guys, this demographic cranks them out like nobody else. So when you're married and facing seasons of infertility or miscarriage, like my wife and I did, you know you're in the minority and it's hard. Non-Americans. We're mostly Americans. Really strange. We're in a foreign country. We're mostly Americans. Not all. You know we have Filipinos in our family. We have a Jamaican sister in our family. 
I could go on. There are other countries represented here. Not everybody got the Biden stymie. What about non-white Americans? I mean, just let's just let's just call a spade a spade. We are a majority white, not by design. That's not what we want. It's not that we value that, but it's just majority. It's who we are. And we're so thankful for those of you who don't look like the rest of us. I would love to see greater diversity, not for diversity's sake, but because it is a true fruit of gospel growth in the life of a people that, unlike people, gather together united around Jesus and the gospel. But it's entirely possible if you are an American who is non-white, you would feel like, yeah, it's a like, good church, I'm thankful for it, but I'm not really represented, and I'm kind of on the outside looking in, and I don't even know if people know my name. And do you expect me to assimilate to your culture? Like, is it good if I'm free to uh, express my own cultural uh, background? Like, is it an expectation that we assimilate to majority culture here? And what about junior enlisted people? Maybe my favorite people that I say for the end of that sentence. Man, it, it, it's more work for you. It's still a lot of bravery for you if you're single and junior enlisted to walk into any church in a context like this. You don't know how people are going to respond with rank, especially in a Marine Corps context. Whack. Right? Man, I planted in Jacksonville, North Carolina, dog. I know it. I planted in Pendleton. I planted a church there. I know it. I can't tell you how glad I am to be in a divert, like all the service branches, like let's water down that Marine Corps ethos just a little bit. <laughs> Thank you for the gospel. It's a lot of bravery for a single young enlisted person to come in here. Some of you even have to find transportation. Some of you can't go off base alone. And I guarantee most of you feel underrepresented and on the outside looking in here. So guys, we don't have to work too hard to just have an honest conversation that there is a majority culture and there are minorities among us for various reasons. And here's the question. If you are in our majority this morning, do you know the names of our brothers and sisters who are not also in the majority? Do we know their story? Do, you know, do we know where they're from? Do we know where they live right now? Where's their neighborhood right now? Where's their, do where's their dorm room? Where's their barracks room? If they called you in a crisis, could you go to their place right now? Do we know their needs? Do we know the seasons that are difficult for them? What's their birthday? Where in Jamaica was Heather born? What's Heather's favorite food? And why are we going to serve it next week when we have our jerk chicken, right? Do we know these things about our, our family members? Does every person in this room know and believe that this is their family regardless of their pay grade, relational status, country of origin, national identity, ethnicity, race, skin color, fill in the blank. Do you know that you're fully accepted, fully affirmed? Do you feel fully known? Are we making people who are outside of our majority context to feel like this is their family and we want them here? I think these are questions that the Spirit would have us consider in light of this passage. And so the question then that we need to ask is, Father, who might we be neglecting? Who might we be neglecting? I can't answer that question for you totally. I, have, I do have one opinion that I'm going to share with you here in a minute. 
I think we need to answer that for each of our individual missional communities. I think we need to answer that question for our own selves personally. And I think we need to answer that question as a church family. And in order to do that, if you have a concern, I want to hear your concern, whether you're in majority or minority in any of those, those demographics that we just walked through. Our pastoral team cares deeply about what you think about these questions. And, I, and I'd love to hear what you think. But here's what I think we're really missing. Here's what I'm missing personally. This is my personal confession piece. Look at verse 7. It says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's beautiful. Notice where it says, The word of God continued to increase, and because it did, more people became Christians. How does the word of God continue to increase? How does that happen? Like, just how does that happen? Is it magic? It's not magic. How does it happen? Like, serious question. I think this is our Achilles heel right here. I think our silence betrays us, too. The word of God continues to increase when followers of Jesus, who now have the word of God in their heart, and they have a story of rescue, a story of redemption, have conversations about the gospel and about Jesus with people who are not yet in the family. Like, it's that simple. That's all we're talking about right here. That's how the word of God increases, and that's how people become Christians and are added to the family. Guys, as as your pastor, as your friend, I have to publicly confess, I don't have enough non-Christian friends in my life. I spend too much time with people who are already in the family. I, for various reasons, which I don't have time to get into right now, do not pursue having gospel conversations regularly enough with people. It's not a priority. And opportunities arise, and I find myself to be a coward or ill-prepared or underprepared. All of the things. It's a personal weakness in my own life. It would be right for somebody to raise the complaint that John does not care enough about people outside the family. And as gently as I can say it, family, in the five years of the life of our church, I think this has been an enduring deficiency that we do really well at aspects of family and really well at aspects of our gathering, but that we are really weak and deficient and are guilty of overlooking, just generally as a family, those in our community who do not yet know Jesus through the gospel. I think if we're going to answer the question honestly, this would be our answer. We could just ask it this way. Would the word of God continue to increase in Okinawa if I was the only Christian left? Would the word of God be increasing in Okinawa if my missional community was the only missional community here? Would the word of God continue to increase in Okinawa if Pillar Church of Okinawa, the best, was the only church here in Okinawa? And I would submit to you that other churches on this island have been carrying um, a majority share of that work, picking up some of our slack. I mean, I'm just, this is a personal confession. This is under my leadership. I think, I'm guilt- I think we're guilty of this. But guys, this text here gives us the freedom as God's spirit-empowered family to say, yes, we have problems. We can be humble and we can own the problem. We don't have to deflect. We don't have to deny. Nor do we have to be consumed by guilt and shame. Jesus was perfect in our place. So yes, we have problems, but we're not accepted by, based on our perfection, right? We're adopted in based on Jesus' perfection in our place. So our Father's fully 
satisfied. He loves us perfectly. He keeps us perfectly. We don't work for approval. We work from approval. So we're not fueled by guilt and shame now. We can be missionally fueled based on our Father's acceptance of us already, even in the midst of our problems. So family, we will always stumble. But because of the Spirit's empowerment, we will stumble forward and we can confidently own and humbly own and give ourselves to growing in our commitment to be missionally engaged with people who don't yet know Jesus here in Okinawa. John's going to come now as one of our pastors and lead us in a a brief prayer of confession. I just want to encourage you, however the Spirit um, prompts you in this moment, to pray along with John and confess uh, whatever it is that you uh, may need to confess.